Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Sleep episode two of my favorite guests ever combined on one show. This is an awesome one. I love the subject of sleep. Uh, perks me right up. Hey, I love sleeping. I think sleeping is fascinating. I think you're going to love this episode. And uh, this, this is, you know, this is just one of the, there's a lot of, I love when I get to explore like bizarre topics too and just learn about some weird grass that exists somewhere that I've never heard about and see if if it like learning about it connects to like other life on earth and stuff in weird ways and trying to sort out how to come up with questions even and and understand uh more about just like the the weirdest thing that i would have never found myself being interested in i love that and the other side of it is i love things like this that are deeply deeply important to us so i i think this is the sort of thing that more audience i think less people are into the, the really weird bizarre stuff than i am that's just my i have no idea but that's my guess um my guess is more people enjoy the things that like more specifically impact uh their their lives i like both personally but this episode's fantastic i wanted to do a quick intro because um um um, um have a have a new thing as i've been working on uh trying to figure out ways of generating more content and things like that and and uh support this show more full time without running ads or anything else and working on various other projects and ideas if you're a regular listener to the mind under matter podcast with me and the absolutely amazing Ramin Nazer, um, you may have heard me make a joke once or twice about, uh, about doing guided ruminations. And, uh, I just, I started a, a while back recording some, wasn't sure about it. And it's part of the fun of doing them is expressing how unsure of it i am and it's uh it's i i really i've been really enjoying it so i have a whole bank of these things and i have some stuff that i'm working on with them um and i have another big project that i was excited to tell you guys about is delayed for i was hoping i was going to be able to tell you like around now-ish and I was hoping I'd be launching in like the spring. Yikes. Now it seems like it won't be until like, I don't know, maybe fall or something like that of next year. Um, and so kind of uh, uh, figuring out where to direct my energy. I always have a zillion different projects going on that you guys aren't even privy to until you are. Um, but, uh, but this, this was something that's, that's I'm, I've been playing around with on the back burner. That's a bunch of fun. And so I just decided to, I just released the first one on Patreon and, uh, and people loved it. I, I got, uh, I got such wonderful, res uh, response to it and it's, uh, very low expectations too, but people, people got a kick out of it. Um, and so I just decided, why not? I'll just, uh, I already have a bunch of these banked up. 
I'm, I'm making more all the time. And as I'm uh, developing some other projects to go along with it, that I'll tell you about in the future. Why not for you guys uh, that support the show on Patreon, I'll release one guided rumination uh, every week. So that's my plan. Just a little bonus thing. And I don't know, you may not, uh, you may not like it. Some of you are going to get a kick out of it. Some of you, it's not going to be your, uh, your cup of tea. And, uh, that's awesome. That's part of, uh, what I do and comedy that I make and everything else. And so it's just a weird, fun project. So if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Also, um, uh, since it's been a while since I've, I've, uh, uh asked for, um, uh, uh, things from you guys. Uh, one thing you can always do is write a review for this show. The holidays are approaching. That's the best Christmas gift that you could give me. If you haven't written a review already, uh, share with a friend if, if, uh, you know, I, I think there's more people. I think Mind Under Matter is is much, much more accessible than this show. The show has like a way more. You're going to learn so much more on this show, in my opinion. Um, but it's not nearly as accessible. You weirdos that are so curious and uh, and nerdy and love hearing about this kind of stuff that I'm fascinated by uh, personally and creating new connections and getting to expand our knowledge and perception and everything else. It's a weird thing. Most people aren't, <laughs> most people aren't into it. And uh, because of the attention span that this podcast takes, I might recommend introducing people to Mind Under Matter first as a gateway. And then, because I'm hoping Mind Under Matter is going to find more people and then people are going to like that. And then that's going to draw them over here for when they uh, want to get, uh, you know, into more nitty gritty, uh, the deep science stuff that I don't have the skills or experience to talk about and instead get these fantastic guests like we have today. So I'd appreciate the review. I'd appreciate uh, if you already gave a review or whatever and you're and you're uh, new to the show, and you're digging it, you can go back and start from the very beginning if you want. We've we've had so many uh, so many episodes. I've been meaning to do that myself. It's just there's so many. But you can scroll through and, and see the topics that you're interested in out of the nearly 400 shows now and, uh, and click around on, on the topics that you most want to hear about. If you like, but no big deal. Um, if, if you can help out with Patreon support, that's very cool as well. But mostly, I just hope you guys are having a nice uh, holiday season and everything. And uh, I know that uh, these are like really fun and exciting times and also trying times and family frustrations sometimes. But also getting to see people you don't get to see very often. And so I know there's just a whole range of emotions and that come along with it and various stressors and everything else. So most importantly, make sure you get some good sleep and enjoy today's episode. 
Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, we have two of my favorite guests and your favorite guests some of the more popular episodes on the show ones that we get uh uh regular feedback on it's been a little while since i've had slatin on but still hear uh, a lot of compliments from both of these guys and they had never met before and i was out uh i was out stand up paddle boarding with barrett klein one day and he was uh <laughs> he was asking me for interesting um academics that i should uh that uh, that I should suggest for him to check out. And I was like, why don't you guys just meet? I know the perfect person for you. You both study sleep and do it in such a different way. And so I, this is the first time that they're meeting. I'm excited. We're just going to have a conversation about sleep that I have no idea where it's going to go. <laughs> I, I, Me neither. Me as the host <laughs> of the show, I, I did absolutely nothing to prepare for this. Me neither. Uh, Other than put these these two together and sounds like I need to pull out my script. Yeah. Um, But yeah, with that, first, I just want to have you guys. Let's just assume for the listeners that maybe just started listening to the show, hasn't heard you guys, haven't heard you guys on it before, or it's been. Uh, a while and they don't remember every uh, every bit of every conversation that we had. Um, I'd like you guys to introduce yourself. So, uh, Zlatan, why don't you go first? Well, my name is Zlatan Križan. I'm a professor of psychology uh, at Iowa State University. That's my day job. Um, <laughs> at night, uh, I'm also a jazz drummer and electronic music DJ and producer. Uh, I do manage to sleep somewhere amidst uh, of all that and uh, make that the subject of most of my professional inquiries. Um, and what does your research say about staying up late, um, like as a DJ with loud music and uh, lasers and <laughs> and such? Is that disruptive? I have, I have not measured lasers <laughs> in particular. <laughs> uh, however, I think the main conclusion is that staying up late makes you tired. Um, we're looking into the details. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Slatin's taste. On, on sleep research because it's mostly like yeah whatever we your need assumption it. was it was it Good was to right. get it. we don't know what's right for anybody and i don't know sleep when you're tired well, is, well, is just, most of his advice just to make this sound semi-professional you know th- there is sort of a debate you know whether any public health sleep intervention has ever worked uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but once we get beyond things like you know changing school start times like there's a there's good evidence that that has made an impact but those are kind of interventions where you massively immediately affect thousands of people's schedules and sleep opportunities but once you get into sort of you know informational campaigns or 
kind of sleep hygiene interventions. Um, there's actually not a lot of uh, good evidence that that has been successful, even though we all like to believe that, you know, you can kind of take some of this knowledge that you have and turn it into a useful public health policy. That's, that's actually, uh, among the scientists at least, there's a good dose of skepticism, uh, even though you see a lot of those efforts uh, around. So Ooh, I have some questions for you. This is great. I mean, I have so many already. We got up there because I, I'm like, well, you, you hear about melatonin, you hear about fiber, and maybe no one's tried combining them. Huh? <laughs> Both at the same time. That'll help you sleep. Um, you can see why I'm not a scientist. Barrett? Well, if Zlatan takes care of Homo sapiens, I'll try to address over 97% of the described animal species on the planet in the form of invertebrates, and especially insects. So I'm an entomologist, and I also bring in occasionally non-insects in my research, and even bats recently with respect to sleep. Yeah, thanks for including and, me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if I have a, if this is my day job, then my vigilante knighthood activities involve art and bringing science and art together in different ways. You you do a lot of um, you, you do a lot of your own drawings and representations of various insects and things of that nature. Yeah, I used to work at. Uh, natural History Display Making Studio and uh, the American Museum of Natural History Making Exhibits. And that gave me skill sets to mold and cast and build either have... fantastical creatures or realistic organisms for educational I have, purposes. I have the best idea. Um, what uh, do you have handy by chance? One of your one of your bug helmet mask things? Uh, you know, all I have right now is I'm in my office, and the only one I have is my, uh, let's see if it still fits my head. We'll see. <laughs> so I don't know what that is. That's just a Halloween <sighs> costume. That's not your, that's not an actual insect. It does still fit my head. That was not an insect head. Uh, yeah. Instead, it was a helmet that is the nuclear fission or power of nuclear fusion in the terms of a spermatozoan and an egg. When I teach about meiosis or mitosis, I pull that out occasionally. <laughs> Throw that on first. It, it, yeah. it, it is a direct and very forward representation <laughs> of the said event. Let's see if I've got anything else. Uh, well, that's uh, well. I'm I'm just going to. You'll maybe send some pictures later because I think that Zlatan could per potentially use one for DJing. I haven't seen uh, insect head DJ before, but there's... <laughs> oh, I there's, have. Uh, and I you have? have. Yeah, there's space for, Excellent! Uh, yeah, there's, uh, you, you, you would be like the 10th one, perhaps? Uh, and and consider, consider the value of having a singing insect head, a cicada, a cricket, grasshopper. Mm. Yeah. Or... Those that cause substrate-borne vibrations, like membracid tree hoppers. Zlatan, we're just brainstorming here. Uh, we're, so, not, we're not obligating you 
to to include this in your show. I'll have to go down the list, uh, <laughs> but at least at at least one arachnid <laughs> would would be good for. I'm looking All to right. expand. Um, well, there are eleven orders to choose from. I mean, you've so, got over forty thousand described species of spiders alone, uh, <laughs> and they do something like sleep as well. Well. Actually, there are murmurings, inklings, although there's no solid study to establish sleep behavior in any spider. Although, studies with scorpions by Irene Tobler, which are arachnids. So, so let me ask. So let me ask you this, uh, uh, just so we don't spend the whole hour making <laughs> semi-witty uh, comments that are hard to understand. Uh, the uh, so uh, one way that I've been thinking about sleep, and especially sort of joining kind of the two scientific streams that haven't always communicated. One really being the sort of circadian rhythm you know biological clock folks and then the sort of sleep you know sleep medicine insomnia this whole other world out there um is that you know it's kind of been the endemic fact of life for every single organism on this planet right the, this rhythm washes of heat and light and cold you know you can add seasonal variation here as well etc and so once you move to these kind of organisms like like you study which don't you know there's not really the brain where we can look to a traditional mechanism for sleep regulation and all this stuff yet you do have this rhythmic behavior so at some point you know uh, maybe when you look down the evolutionary tree you get into the where sleep is just whatever activities were relegated to the downtime which into bugs doesn't look like it looks in the vertebrate brains of course but maybe you can chat about that a little bit yeah absolutely and i think that's it's really exciting for me and i think it should be for all sleep biologists to think in a comparative light because we tend to be human focused anthropocentric in our in our uh, approach to analyzing sleep and that makes some sense we're humans and we want to understand how we operate. We also want to understand how uh, sleep maladies or sleep disorders could be uh, remedied. So it makes some sense from a, a medical and psychological standpoint to study ourselves. But if we reach out beyond Homo sapiens to non-human apes, to non-ape primates, to non-primate mammals, to non-mammal vertebrates, and then extend beyond that, we begin to uh, potentially address fundamental questions of not only what is sleep evolutionarily, but functionally, what is what constitutes sleep. So we can think about sleep in a very human-centric way, and that's valuable. And then when we pull back and we try to analyze sleep in such a different organism. I mean, if you think about looking at sleep in a parrotfish that produces this mucous membrane within which it sleeps, or if we think about sleep- Wait, hold on, what? what? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it just sort of oozes out this mucus bubble that forms this protective coating. Some people think it's to prevent uh, scent cues 
from reaching their predators like an octopus. Yeah, wouldn't you want it just to has a weird mucus or a shark? It's a weird mucus sleeping bag that yeah, it it's makes a sleeping bag made amazing. out of your own mucus. Yeah. Wouldn't you want to throw up your own bed? I mean, that would be the greatest <laughs> hack yeah. for camping ever. That's right. Uh, <laughs> And then, and then you go into something as bizarre as well. Let's let's think about the animal tree of life. We've got us within the vertebrates, and larger the chordates, and our relatives hemichordates, acorn worms, and stuff like that. And then you get to these other organisms that can shed their exoskeletons, and still others apart from those that have only two embryonic tissue layers. These are, these are the jellyfish, for example, cnidarians. And within cnidarians, you've got, say, the hydra that's recently been shown to sleep. And the hydra only have two layers of cells. I mean, they're very simple. They're the simplest of the cnidarians, the corals, jellyfish, and others. And then outside of that, what about those who don't even have neurons, don't have a nervous system, like sponges, like placozoans? <laughs> These are sticky zones, hair plates, zones, zones. the simplest animals on the planet. And really, they're, they're these gray little blobs that are sticky. I mean, their scientific name means sticky hair plate. So so what's going on here in terms of how you're quantifying uh, what is sleep? Because you have, if you have something that's, um, let's see, it, there there's some ticks that will just get on a plant and then hunker down for months at a time, just waiting for something to pass by, right? And then and then latch on, or something wakes it up when it brushes by and it latches on, but until that time, it's basically just not moving for potentially months. Is that is that sleep? Is that hibernation? Is that, and how would you decipher between the two? When you look at a suite of behavioral characters or sleep signs, it can be difficult to impossible to look at all of them simultaneously. But if you study them adequately, you may have a sleep proxy, some maybe one or two superficial behavioral states where you say, hey, that correlates really strongly with these other character traits that behaviorally define sleep. And so if you can spot that and say if you could identify one in a tick, then you'd have to distinguish it from other relatively immobile states. So for example, uh, you could be really, really immobile, but as you mentioned, hibernation or estivation or cold torpor or death. I mean, there are a lot of different states and one of those is diapause where say, for example, some organisms like water bears, they can go into this state where they essentially shut down. Their metabolism is almost flatlined. Some organisms dry up. And the idea is if you're faced with some environmental stressor that you can't withstand, then you shut down. Maybe you enclose yourself in some cyst or protective coating and then just lay low until an environmental cue, maybe it's temperature, maybe it's moisture, to use your term, wakes up the organism. But mm. if, you, if, you, if you use the term wakes up, then it connotes or suggests that that organism was in a sleep state. 
If we use it more loosely, maybe you can wake an organism from cold torpor <laughs> with the right <laughs> stimulus, or maybe you can wake an organism from a coma. I, I want anesthesia. To, uh, the torpor seem, seems like the most appealing to like that's how I kind of want to live my life is just <laughs> right on the precipice of hibernation. Well, well, let's 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 throw it to humans in this way, at least anthropological and some sort of historical analysis of what humans used to do when you didn't have electricity and when these rhythms were purely driven by natural cues, by natural meaning cues of light and heat from the environment, um, is you had strong seasonal variation where you had a bunch of people who would typically be co-sleeping, living maybe the first homo sapiens or rectus that ventured north. And there was actually several versions of... Uh, people <laughs> that yeah. lived all over Europe and some didn't make it <laughs> and our ancestors did uh, but where you had you know weeks or months of what we guess now would be you know extended sleep hours and something like a torpor where you were just like not doing much just looked like a very depressed person but it was somewhat functional and everybody did it and there was nothing else to do and that was matched you know with the activity cycles you know i mean nothing like that we can remember or even reach out through probably recorded you know uh, record to get a good sense of it but i i think it's those rhythms right when we get to these definitions of sleep which come so challenging when you adopt this comparative and analysis because what a textbook a sleep medicine textbook will define sleep and will have a lot to do with neurons and the brain and you're not just not gonna have those things when you get down to sponges as 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 Baird has right. mentioned yeah. and, and so you really get into this you know pockets when different things are happening and really those are tied to days or seasons even all those other examples from animals generally have to do with seasons although then you have this other kind of a like maybe other environmental thing like no resources now so let me wait it's really boring now so let me take a pause well it's really dangerous now no matter what time of year right and zlatan is referring to this i this long-held notion about what sleep is all about and uh, John Allen Hobson famously said, and every sleep biologist knows this quote, sleep is of the brain, by the brain, and for the brain. And so it really struck the sleep biology community when the first study of a brainless individual was conducted recently on Cassiopeia, this uh, upside-down jellyfish. Okay. And and oh, this upside-down jellyfish, so jellyfish and other cnidarians, do, they do have nervous systems. They have neurons. But in cnidaria, it's weird in a couple of respects. They've got nerve nets. They don't have what people think of as a central nervous system or a brain, really, but two sets of nerve nets. And one other weird thing is that the firing can go in either direction. So a little understood. But... They don't have brains. And then, so the hydra also is a cnidarian, as I mentioned, and that doesn't have a brain. And so just as, just as Latan is uh, uh, suggesting, people are excited to look at potential nerve, nervous system-free 
organisms like sponges, like placozoans within animals. The other... Why? Because yeah, sorry. It, if sleep indeed is for the brain, by the brain, of the brain, all about that brain, and yet you've got these brainless individuals, what if it's not even about nervous systems? Um, what if there's something inherent at the cellular level that might be shared at least to some extent across organisms to reset, to reboot, to regenerate? I feel like you guys are going to get into a real beef over, over <laughs> this. This is going to be a contentious uh, topic. I don't I, think so. Because that, sleep is such a mystery. That was, that was me wish thinking. Anytime, anytime <laughs> I can kind of get a science fight going, it's my favorite. It almost never happens. But uh, <laughs> be, be, as you guys were kind of talking about some of these um, the protective and defensive issues, that's, that's sort of interesting because another thing if i were if i were to teach uh you know a sleep 101 course or, or something i imagine the thing that you kind of the go-to opener is why the heck do we sleep if, if it's a mistake it's evolution's biggest mistake why would you just clonk out and make yourself vulnerable and blah 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 and so clearly sleep is about memory consolidation and and uh, the and various other things and so it's it's, it's interesting to hear the defensive uh, angle i've never really heard too much of that well i i think that um this is another debate, you know, there are lots of debates like that in science, you know, nature, nurture, and genes, environment is not one that I think we're actually on a precipice of going over. Um, so, for, there's a lot of controversy. So, for example, this idea of a circadian rhythm, right? We have a circadian clock in brains, and they kind of do that. And there's a this BMAL1 gene that does most of the transcription and that all the pretty much evidence points to that if you annihilate this thing, you lose the oscillation in a lot of kinds of things that should typically happen. But there's some new findings, for example, that suggest that maybe even if you knock this thing out, you are going to get some variation. Um, there are people are have very strong opinions. Is this possible in principle or not? And let let me just say it. it we can call it an unsettled issue, uh, but the the fact is that did you have these oscillations, which are circadian, that is a day night oscillations, but we've alluded to other ones, seasonal ones, and. They're, they're quicker ones that are present in extremely simple organisms, and. So when we tackle a question such as what is a, what is the function of sleep, I, I think sort of a good editors to have is the same editor when you when you ask and answer the question what's the function of movement <laughs> or walking. Well, you know, uh, you know we need things that are maybe not here but are over there. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, but yeah. these are very basic things that are that are that always been like presence of space and time, and in oscillations in environment have always been there around organisms, and I think the function of sleep keeps changing as the evolution occurs because new things get co-opted, right? And there's new issues, and and if when you have a new skill, do I do it now or do I do it then, or how much do I do now and how much do I do then? And these things, I think, get integrated into whatever has existed before. And everything Zlatan mentioned requires energy. That movement requires energy, right? So 
could it be that the default state is sleep, as some have suggested? And Paul Shaw said, I think, I think we didn't evolve sleep, we evolved wakefulness, which is a, a playful approach to thinking about need-based um, changes. Yeah. When to be so active. If, yeah. When yeah. to be active so, is the primordial question, right? Yeah. Because if you're going to expend energy, if something's costly, it better be worth it. And yes. if, you're, if you can live in this default state and still attain fitness, namely reproduce, great. If you have to act, if you have to defend yourself, if you have, if you have to procure food or build shelter or find a mate if you're a sexually reproducing organism, it's all costly. Yeah, that's, I mean, a lot of this um, might sound frustrating or unnecessary in someone sitting there in their modern world in their cubicle job or whatever and being like, Oh, I, I still need to work the exact same amount of hours all year round. Why do I need to have the sleep requirement during the winter? But, you know, we're in the holiday season right now and both Halloween and winter solstice were both these kind of marks of uh, Halloween being like, oh, death is coming. All of the uh, uh, all of the foods going away. We better start hunkering mm -hmm. down. Winter solstice being uh, what usually the coldest night of the year and this these were insanely deadly times presumably for many of our many of our ancestors and probably probably sleeping was better than most any other option you want to go to the outhouse at minus 20 you know i mean <laughs> without a columbia jacket yeah uh you probably peed inside uh, so yeah, that, that, that's how it worked a long time ago yeah and of course hmm. you have the uh tropical situation where there are differences even seasonal differences dry season wet season when are things fruiting when are uh dangerous organisms prevalent uh i have a question for zlatan uh that relates to an idea that you um alluded to this idea that if we can go off the grid or if we don't have these uh external pressures or demands can we reveal our biological inherent innate circadian rhythm and quantity of sleep? And the only study, maybe you know of more, but the only study I'm aware of, Jerome Siegel was involved, is a study looking at traditional peoples in South America and Africa. There are three uh, groups that were examined that don't have electricity and similar inputs stimuli in terms of how long they sleep and we've all heard that you should get nine hours of sleep some of you and said 10 hours of sleep or at least the average of eight hours of sleep but in my experience um first hand second hand third hand it varies depending on the individual and it can be context dependent and in the case of these um groups that were studied they showed actually significantly less sleep than what I mentioned. So it ended up being like six and a half hours or seven, seven and a half hours, depending on the group. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, from a public health perspective, that's a big question of, you know, how much sleep does a person need? You know, the, uh, 
obviously any number here is gonna not do justice to an understanding of what it is then you get to something like seven to nine hours which is a common recommendation which is you know all else being equal a fine rec it's not an outrageous mm -hmm. recommendation it's a fine recommendation now but does it mean uh, or, or do we know that if you're getting less than seven hours you're creating trouble for yourself or more than nine hours that's a problem then you get into all kinds of you know, epidemiological data which shows that yeah these are maybe like a higher risk categories but that's not causal evidence that sleeping this way or that way produces those outcomes for example obviously if you're very ill you may be spending a lot of time immobile and drifting in and out of sleep for all kinds of reasons um so then how do you assess the sleep need is uh, then becomes the question is it by subjective reports of tiredness is it being able to do some sort of a task or react in a certain way there are tests of that but what you see on those tests and we've done some of the studies like this you see massive differences in in people's tolerance of sleep loss so where sleep loss pretty much hurts everybody universally how much it hurts them varies to almost from almost zero to a huge amount so that points as well that you have very distinct sleep needs from one individuals to another and these sleep needs may themselves vacillate over geospatial type of factors we can talk about um, older societies we can talk about different parts of planet earth and as a matter of fact there's evidence too when you're trying to look at, at group uh, group differences and really at the biological ancestry again where you're moving beyond identity as reported on surveys but you're really looking at biological ancestry in terms of where you and your ancestors have lived uh, that the you know more sleep may also become a necessity as we moved into perhaps more harshest climates that have more seasonal variation and that the change that need and we know for human research that you know if you if not much is going on you may sleep more now is that unmasking the sleep that you already have so you're always chronically underslept or is it that there's not a better option behavioral option that is that need for activity is not there and you have your needs met that also gets conceptually to be a very difficult question to answer also the difficulty in decoupling like your uh, genetic background what is what is your ethnicity what is your cultural heritage what is your genetic background or makeup in terms of are you in the tropics versus a temperate zone so it'd be really interesting to explore those questions and yeah there's i mean that's 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 endless do you do you have hope that there's going to be much headway in that direction where you can kind of look at someone's genome and be like well this person's slightly more susceptible to coffee uh the, this person is is uh is, is just going to be less of a sleeper than this person but then there's these environmental differences where someone worked a night shift for 20 years or um had whatever happened to them in their in their childhood or or whatever else and I, is that is that something that's like exciting to you in any way on the horizon or do you think it's it, do you think that it's it's going to come up blank in a lot of ways at the at the very least you can tackle genetic predisposition and mm -hmm. so for example there are heritable components related to whether or not you're an owl or a lark mm -hmm. 
So like mm. the owl and a lark example is a good example of something that's almost exclusively under genetic control. You can really move that only way if you have very consistent schedule changes, right? If you really, you know, move and you're awake and eating at times, which would be, let's say, night times or day times, you can reset some of those things. And we know you can reset those things because you can measure, you know, physiological markers as well as sort of behavioral reaction time kinds of things. Um, and, and so circadian rhythms are one of those things that we are kind of pretty helpless at. You have a big variation, a natural variation from larks to owls, and you have a big developmental variation, you know, like teenagers, we peak at about 21, you know, and, and then there's a sort of gradual descent into morningness where you can't sleep past 5 a.m. when you turn 50. So, so, but that's, we can do very little uh, um, uh, with this. Uh, but then you have things such as insomnia, right, difficulty sleeping, which are huge concern for for lots of people and th these are one of the things that we study for example with respect to genetic overlap personality differences and once you see that when you look at sleeping problems is that people who have sleeping problems have a certain profile right they are characterized by a variety of personality features which are further related to variety environmental features we can think of sort of as two different overlapping pool these are individuals prone to distress that find it difficult to regulate emotions uh, <clears throat> that will often report symptoms of anxiety and depression overall poor organization and poor routines and it's not to say that these are the reasons for the sleep problems or mm -hmm. that sleep problems are, are the reason for the things, but they uh, will the tend cause, to work yeah. together. And and sleep rhythms and when you sleep when you're awake in general is a function of your stresses, of your needs, environmental needs, and something that varies a lot day to day and varies from person to person. And so it's an embedded in this matrix of uh, job demands, family demands, psychological stresses, personality vulnerabilities that Barrett has mentioned. And so one problem with any kind of intervention on, let's say, human sleep where, you know, we care about hydras, but <laughs> I guess nobody started the hydra sleep intervention. Um, <laughs> uh, which is not to say that, uh, just to be clear, that studying hydra sleep is not extremely important for understanding human sleep, which I think it is. Um, is that is there's this whack-a-mole situation right like and we know that from sleep hygiene you know as soon as you tell people a bunch of stuff they need to do to sleep better there comes another source of anxiety which is exactly the thing you don't want if you want to have go to sleep and so this is where we kind of find ourselves with a lot of desire and motivation to help humans sleep uh, but the problems in people that have them are, are not one that are easily solvable by a piece of advice or even a simple behavioral intervention um, uh, where people make trade-offs and I, I think to, to put it back sort of in the, in the animal world and, and evolution of sleep when you make this trade-off matters a lot and sometimes the trade-off to do something else even when you really need sleep has made sense you see that with threat and that's one big cause of sleeping problems is any feelings of threat right or anxiety or, or anger because uh, and those, that was deadly for us evolutionarily, but those feelings can be fostered by Instagram these days and not by an actual predator <laughs> in the night. Uh, so, so I, I think that if, I think one of the more important things that you're bringing up here, just to repeat and, and 
simplify it even more just for listeners is is Zlatan's kind of touching on the the um the difficulties of, of pinning down a arrow of causation on and is is your uh lack of sleep causing anxiety or did anxiety cause the lack of sleep is an important yeah. thing um to remember so how do it, when when you're thinking about the like any any topic any guest that i ever have on it's everything's always infinitely more complex and more nuanced than it first looks of course what? and <laughs> and and but how how do you start teasing apart things when you look at um you, you know we just got through thanksgiving where you look at okay do people get sleepy um, because of Turkey or is it a defense mechanism from family conflict? <laughs> um, <laughs> what, how, how do you start teasing that apart in, in, in and wondering what similarities and differences there might be in, I guess I'm human. So I tend to think of humans as so complex and varying and flexible compared to say an ant or something like that. I have a couple thoughts, but I'd love for you to to comment on on my thoughts and Shane's thoughts, if that's okay, Slatan. Sure. Um, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I was just thinking. So, Thanksgiving. Yeah, there could be those shutdown defense mechanisms. There could also be <laughs> the, the, there could be factors in consuming a lot of food There's and having to deal there. with that. Uh, that's right. Yeah. And there could be factors involving. Everything. If I think about my my poor students, so my undergraduates who had all these exams and all these assignments leading right up to vacation, hukonk, you know, that's the downtime. And so that's when you can get a lot of uh, makeup sleep. Absolutely. You know, you, it, so a lot of people say that if you if you stick the average undergrad in a dark, warm room, they go to sleep in less than eight minutes, so they're chronically sleep deprived. So now take them out of that room and make it a Thanksgiving situation. Boop! Probably going to get a lot of sleep. Zlatan? Hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, what's, you know, why do people fall asleep in class? Uh, is it because it's boring? No, it may be boring, but no way. Uh, the reason uh, is that uh, once you remove locomotion and stimulation, uh, the homeostatic sleep mechanism tends to, tends to take over. The more difficult question, um, this raises, I guess, let me answer the Shane's, the, uh, Shane's question about how do you tease apart this direction of, let's say, emotional distress, environmental reactions, and then how long you sleep or how well you sleep. Uh, well, there's kind of, you know, two ways that, that we do it is you know one way is you having the experiments you know you deprive people or animals of sleep and you see what happens a lot of that's been done the other way is you uh, make things happen um so uh, one one area of research that that we just sort of finished summarizing and and are, are are trying to understand better is how emotions impact sleep so there you see that there's been a bunch of studies done and in general you see that if you induce negative emotions um that tends to delay sleep a little bit but the studies there have been very few they're very small so we actually we don't have very good answers even about uh, something like that tons of observational study linking people who report more negative emotions or um, meet diagnostic criteria for mood disorder 
disorder, et cetera, she have a lot of sleep impairment. But in terms of if you want to know on a very dynamic level, you have a stress, you have a negative emotions, what's doing that doing to your sleep right then and then. Uh, so we're mm. trying, you know, we're, we're, going to, we're currently showing people horror movies before bed. Um, I don't want to say anymore uh, to try to understand what that is going to do relative to, you know, watching people at Starbucks, for example, uh, chatting away, um, but trying to get a more f finer analysis of something that people routinely do, but we really don't know what impact that has on their sleep. So that's probably the ideal. Well, causally, if you want to look at it together, then you get in these diary studies where you measure both things at the same time and you do this time lag analysis. Um, and those are very useful, but those kind of turn out a slightly different pattern every time. Sometimes sleep mm. predicts sleep a little more, sometimes emotions, sometimes emotions predict sleep a little more. Um, mm. And we're trying to look at some different kinds of math that's been used with sardines in the past to disentangle these things by trying to, to for example, um, uh, looking at um, multidimensional space reconstructions, underlying time series analysis, and uh, <laughs> lots of other mathy geeky things I'm not going to get into. Uh, but, but that's kind of where the state is at of trying to get at this question of, let's say, about how stress or emotions um, impact sleep and vice versa i i love this. so right before bed you like have someone give a speech to a bored yes. stranger i think that's one of the most reliable ways to get the cortisol flowing and or or you have uh maybe you have people journal about a moment that they're they feel guilty about from their childhood or something people and, have uh, done uh, so when we went through these studies it's interesting to see what uh, scientists have done to try to induce an emotional response that may affect sleep so very common is showing some kind of film or a stimuli um, then you have this you know uh, giving a speech uh, in front of a panel there's a three-year social stress test which is a very well-known way to, to stress people out um, but then you have kinds of things like uh, taking a test and failing a test that tends to be stressful but my very favorite study was a, a, a group of parachute jumpers that uh, had their sleep monitors on days when they were anticipating a parachute jump and a day in when actually they completed a parachute jump. And it turns out that anticipating a parachute jump does impact your sleep in that particular study, which involved only a few people, I should say. But um, and and would that would that depend on experience, prior experience? Uh, like if you're a very so, experienced so, so that's a great question, and they've looked at that. They had a few novices, and that if you experience jumpers, but that ends up, you know, comparing five people to another three people, and it's just not much we can learn, unfortunately, from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, There's so a here's a critical question: um, psychological thrillers or slasher films? Are you showing them, for example, Hereditary, or are you showing them a Jason film? It Individual differences, because some people uh, some people find horror movies so laughable that it doesn't get yeah. the heart rate going at all, and, and then and, and that is it. So we we've we've coped with that. So we we protested this stimuli. Um, I, I can't quite recall the exact uh, exact movies, but uh, what we ended up going with, and these are things that elicited quite strong disgust reactions and distress yeah. reactions, sometimes anger, but kind of medical horror movie that involves drilling into the skull and the brain so not even necessarily a lot of blood and gore but the, it, it 
turned out those are things that tend to pretty universally affect individuals. Uh, j just sound of a drill going into a skull is pretty profoundly out. unpleasant. Uh, and, um, <laughs> And again, we, of course, I want to make clear that, you know, we, we don't let people who have had significant experience with trauma or sleep problems participate in this research. Obviously, our, our point is to learn about these things, not to, to further harm people. Uh, <laughs> yet one does in inevitably end up sounding uh, gleeful about what they're doing. Uh, yeah. Question, uh, are you in that study, not to expose too much, but are you? Are you doing follow-ups to see, for example, if those um, victims of the horror films uh, then show um, that homeostat, more sleep later, deeper sleep, uh, uh, a better sleep afterwards, or are they prone to um, be more sensitive? Are they sensitized or are they habituated? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great question. However, in order to be fair, what we do over a course of four days is everybody sees the horror videos on a couple of nights and they see the other non-distressing um, uh, videos on the two other nights. So everybody sees the same number of videos on different nights, counterbalanced, etc. And uh, in a grand scheme of things, we have to remember that this is not from outside the scope of what individuals typically expose themselves in the evening sure. via Netflix, mm -hmm. uh, for example. So, But we will definitely, obviously, with the brief individuals, we want to make sure there's not any negative reactions or anything that would cause individuals' problems going forward. And we may follow up uh, with folks. But everybody's going to have sort of this um, experience of just watching a few things over a, a few nights. I've got what? loads of questions, but uh, one one follow-up, more of a general question for me. So this taps into why it's so beautiful to conduct uh, psych sleep studies on humans, because you can get feedback. You can get verbal or literal mm -hmm. feedback uh, in a way that you can't with honeybees that I study. Uh, so there are trade-offs, of course, where you can work with fruit flies or honeybees in one way, but you can't work in the same way I with humans. I can tell you one yeah. thing. The people will never give you any honey. <laughs> <laughs> There's a drawback. <laughs> but with the human, I mean, one, one study that has especially uh, thrilled me recently was uh, Concoli et al. This is a current biology study. Went that went beyond your normal self-reporting in which lucid dreamers were in some cases able to communicate directly to the researcher while asleep. And it was mm. this beautiful thing where here, just imagine you've got this uh, patient, this study subject and hooked up to electrodes and they're engaging in sleep. You've trained them to respond in very predictable, stereotyped ways that are atypical during sleep, normal sleep, say during rapid eye movement sleep, where you uh, exhibit most of your narrative dreaming, um, you're not going to have rapid eye movements like this sweeping across your face back and forth. And you, won't, you might not have specific facial muscle contractions, right? But if you train to say, this will be a yes while I'm asleep, 
or this will be a no, right? And then you, you ask questions. 8 minus 4 equals, or a yes or no answer. And then you gauge during REM sleep, which you can measure because of the high frequency, low amplitude waves that you're measuring from the brain. Uh, you say, okay, they're in REM sleep. Now I'm going to ask them the question. And because humans, um, and this isn't universal across animals by any stretch, humans are able to take external inputs, stimuli, and incorporate them in a dream state. And in the case of lucid dreamers, upon occasion, even respond or alter their dream states with respect to these external stimuli. Uh, they, at least on six, with six individuals out of something like 35, they were able to respond with the correct answers. So here you've got a direct communication. There's even a study that looks at communication between dreamers. I think that's mm. marvelous. Yeah, I, I just want to echo that there's absolutely solid documented evidence of people being able to do that. It's not, they may not be average person of the street, but there are a lot of individuals that are able to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, th this approach, uh, for example, one thing that's common is to have a pretty uh, slow sweeping movement for yes, let's say right once and uh, twice the other way. This can be done different ways. But if you pre-select people who are lucid dreamers, you can you can help yourself with the questionnaires there as well. And then once you um, are monitoring the EEG, you can know exactly the sleep state as Barrett has described. In one study, um, and unfortunately, I can't remember exactly the authors at, at this moment, but they were they, they tried to measure what inception dealt with. Then that is, does time slow down or speed up in dreams, or at least and yes. what ended up being lucid dreams of these dreamers. And, you know, in inception, it sort of, you know, you have more time <laughs> the deeper you go. Here, the finding was actually the opposite. And the idea is, which mm -hmm. kind of makes sense given the brain, is because all the communication is sort of slowed down or slugged down through the bunch of other brain noise that you have to deal with in that state. Um, so that can happen. And another example of this merging of, let's say, dreams or, or sleep as a state and think we relegate to wakefulness being responsive to external stimulation and, and you know talking or, or, or seeing things is is sleep paralysis right where you will have combination of dream imagery which is produced or created by the dreamer um seeing things that appear as they're in the real world but different than if, if, if they're a dream and here's there's a whole another example where even the dreamer sense dreamer thinks they're awake from a dream yes. but they're actually still dreaming but they have to see the kind of things that they normally only experience in wakefulness and never experience in dreams and that can be a, a really important important problem for some individuals but the whole notion of sleep either is an inaccurate state or as a homogeneous thing that's a thing is kind of been broken down uh, through the last over the last few decades of, of research and in, in terms of non-human studies won't there be ways to so if you if you take a, a juvenile male bird that's sitting there trying to learn and mimic his father's very impressive bird song and he's doing that all through the day and you got a little MRI on him tracking what brain activity is active when he's 
trying to rehearse this song and then it goes to sleep. And then lo and behold, you see some of this exact same uh, activity as if it's rehearsing and it's sleep in, in, in the way that uh, if you, I, I play a lot of pickleball and I once in a while have a pickleball dream or something yeah. like that. And Shane, I, I'm, I bet you're referring to zebra finch research where the juveniles, when exposed or not to proper songs, you can watch during their sleep, basically the building of syllables until they have the complete song. That's mm. marvelous research where you can couple the behavior before and after onto genetically, namely developmentally, as these birds are maturing in, in real time, also electrophysiologically. I mean, that's really exciting. And and you get to put a little helmet on a bird, which is exciting in and of Always. itself, even Always if it's not scanning study. its brain. What uh, what oh. a version of that you see in humans is twitching. Uh, this comes before you're even born in utero. To what you see, for example, with emotional expression. So, you know, uh, as everybody knows, babies, when they really don't have much emotional expressions when they're born, you kind of have your crying, you have your like uh, quiet alert and an active alert, but not much emotions there. And some emotional expressions are not even months or years later into development. But what you see first is a range of this emotional expression being twitched on a face of infants while they're sleeping before they will ever exhibit it in interaction with the parent or while being awake. Mm. And and you'll see I'm going through this whole, I don't know if you ever see, you know, YouTube it if you never see it, but mm. everything from going to anger to sadness to surprise and all this on a baby's face, even while baby maybe is only doing a first true smile is really the only kind of a more, mm. more complex emotional reactions. And it just goes to that, that, you know, this rehearsal uh, thing, which really scales down the evolutionary scale in terms of the function of sleep is that a lot of things that we do while we're awake some things we don't do while we sleep but the other things we do do while we sleep and often we do it first then and and later we do it while we awake or we do it at the same time to help us the ultimate performance and maybe uh, this is just popping in my mind but you might be able to think of a parallel in terms of play behavior and the evolutionary advantages the fitness effects related to play so play is a training ground for whole list of things, including fighting. And so if you develop without play, will you be as capable against future competitors? Hmm. If you develop with sleep restriction, will you be less capable to emote uh, properly? Yeah, and hmm. if you don't ever dream about being naked in class, will you be able to prepare for the test properly? Yeah, what happens <laughs> when you do go naked in yeah, class? Trouble! Yeah. But this is sort of tongue-in-cheek, but that is the function of dreaming, too, that has been emphasized by, by several scholars, uh, is that it's it's a rehearsal, but it's a rehearsal for the unexpected. So a lot of things may seem bizarre and random, and a lot of them are random and bizarre, and most of them may be useless. But if you can cover even a small number of potentially useless scenario which you can't anticipate, right? Mm -hmm. And this is when the random factor of dreaming really has, I think, a fit that uh, only if you listen to Pandora you can understand, but people usually underappreciate uh, why randomness is so important to finding a new solution, yeah. for example, uh, and, and something novel that can be very useful. 
Uh, that, you know, that relates to different scientists' autobiographical takes on how they experienced revelatory movements. So where did their inspiration come? When did it come? And sometimes it's a walk along the beach. It's not in the lab where you're grilling yourself. You know, sometimes I'm... Uh, Tell me if you experience this where you're trying to remember a name and uh, and then you don't think about it and you revisit. Oh, of course, it comes to your mind. Uh, brain works in odd ways. And one of these that keep coming back in what I read about creativity or uh, revelatory um, uh, behavior is this idea that you give your brain a break, you move away, and it can come more clearly. Both, both Watson and Crick wrote in their autobiographies about this inspirational moment being during off times. Yeah, and there's a, a you know a rich rich tradition of that. Uh, I, I actually have a, a friend that that studies um, sort of creative thought and daydreaming, uh, and you know I've done that work with scientists too, uh, and seeing you know when those moments occur, surveys where you know scientists keep diaries of where they come up with this shit. Excuse me, uh, <laughs> and exactly as Barrett has, has said, uh, you know I I think. Technical solutions will tend to come in the lab, but those breakthroughs or novel perspectives or a different take on something you've been thinking about do tend to happen in the proverbial shower. Yeah, mm. or the literal shower, right? <laughs> or the literal shower. Yeah. Or the toilet. <laughs> And what about just memory consolidation? As because it, it's, it's it, I I get the idea of simulating a bunch of randomness and that getting you prepared for things that haven't yet come and various whatever black swan events or whatever. But also, if you're a if you if you're going to be in the uh, if you're like what is it like the super memorizer competitions or whatever the memory olympics and your training yeah. and a lot of these people are are constructing very ridiculous exaggerated they need to memorize this enormous list of random words and they construct this crazy Palace. story uh that's like gross and and weird and make mm -hmm. all these strange connections and they can remember their grocery list like nothing or whatever else yeah. or or Mary um, yeah, and even even um, even kids. I often use the example of of kids playing like floor is lava or something like where it's where it's this way of artificially simulating just uh, higher stakes in a benign way to maybe train your um, motor movement a little more than the effort that you would put into just jumping from pillow to pillow. Yeah, Robert Stickold's work and uh, Matthew Walker's and others have shown really nicely this um, causal association. I mean, I have to say beyond correlation, um, or at least really strong correlation between the training, the value of training and more training, or the value of training and sleep with respect to performing some uh, psychomotor vigilance tasks or some... Uh, tasks that might be physical in nature, like skiing in a video game. Mm. It's really compelling. 
and it it, it it turns out for a lot of those things it it's probably more important as as you move into more complex skills so things with really coordination of different parts of the brain different parts of bed you know it becomes important if we just look at you know bench pressing <laughs> or things like that um it, they seem less affected and as soon as you move into things that require a lot of coordination which then also requires sustaining that coordination over mm. time which is often where the rubber meets the road when you're sleepy and there's this kind of a wake state and stability hypothesis that's been around which actually says that one one problem with being sleep is not that you can't do things is that you can't do them reliably is that maintaining a certain predictability in what you do and how you do it becomes an issue that's a really good point because say if you're doing something like bench pressing or doing something that's innate or just very simple mechanical or short term yeah will that be effective yeah, will that be affected with lack of sleep? And some uh, non-human vertebrate examples, bird examples, uh, include sandpipers. So sandpiper shorebirds, during breeding season, season, some of the males will sleep on the order of about an hour a night, even less than an hour. It's Friday and this night. Can last, and, but this can last for several weeks, right? And during Every the normal state, it's, that's right, that's right. But, you know, these continuous uh, low level sleep for weeks, just like frigate birds, uh, Niels Rottenborg in Germany has been looking at frigate birds that are sea birds, but they can't land on the water, or they'll drown, right? So they have to stay in flight or aloft above the water for weeks, even months at a time and catch the squids or fish that are being propelled from the water that fly out of the water when predators are after them to scoop up. These, these birds also sleep on the order of an hour a night for extended periods of time. And that, that tells you a couple of things. It tells you that sleep is really important because otherwise they would forego it altogether. Imagine trying to fly while asleep. And in the case of the frigate birds, it's complicated. They engage in either total sleep, where both sides of the brain are asleep for several minutes, and nobody knows how they do that, why they're not paralyzed and fall into the sea and drown, or unihemispheric, where one half of the brain is essentially asleep, functionally, electrophysiologically asleep, in order to coordinate vision to see where they're flying so they don't bump into things, right? They don't so, drive off the road, yeah. Right. So it tells us how important sleep is, but it also gives us hints, windows into how plastic or flexible sleep can be when pressures are on to eat, to mate, hmm. to survive, to reproduce. Uh, but is is that is that situation um, something that is potentially costly in other in the way that uh that a salmon just uses every bit of cortisol and everything else it, it can to get upstream and and to mate and then ends up dying of a, a horrible cancery death uh afterwards because it can't down regulate is right it, it, and some of those salmon have made it right yeah. if that increases their fitness natural selection operated on those factors and bow they made it they can they can fall apart in your between your fingers, right? Mm -hmm. But in the case of these longer-lived birds, they've got to make it through not only those short nights of sleep, but 
presumably homeostatically, they'll regain a lot of like the frigate bird. Once it lands, it sleeps 12 hour nights. And I think for mm. for humans, you know, where the argument gets to there's this kind of additional consideration, at least uh, of us for us uh, of things such as quality of life so often you know what the reason i think we have to care about sleep is not you know even though the functions or, or, or a lot of dynamics there may involve evolutionary heritage and may involve evolutionary pressures from a long time ago i i think you know we often pay um a price uh because uh, we have we chronically underslept or you have the kind of routine that doesn't allow you for that is we pay that price in wakefulness that's the price it's not about sleep it's about wakefulness and when the sleep doesn't unfold and doesn't work with wakefulness such that it just works well with it which may mean one night of uh, one episode of sleep which may have meant two separate episodes of sleep a long time ago there may not be universal answer but the answer is it has to fit with the other tasks and things and very often now with technology just doesn't fit it doesn't fit for most people and creating any kind of routine where you have these smooth transitions right and the reason we should care about it is not because any kind of evolutionary history but our own well-being and quality of life and having energy to do stuff that we want <laughs> so that that's kind of the and i think the way we heal it is not by giving a particular recommendation that everybody has to follow right by understanding that you know you are a system of activity and rest and that you need to make a, a patchwork of that stuff that works and evidence in support of some of what satan was saying is Look at um, look at your behavior during the day. If it's more intense or more cognitively taxing, or you know it's full of activity, your sleep is going to be different. Mm-hmm. That, so that's, the, it's. Uh, I mean, I I uh, I take a lot of classes and and listen to a lot of audiobooks and most of that is because i can barely read a book without falling asleep and i love books when i'm reading them i'm enjoying it. i'm coming up with ideas but man puts me right to sleep really quite reliably and i, I can read stuff on a screen doesn't seem to have the same effect but then there's there's uh you know i'm like uh I think I think a common experience is to be, ah, oh, you're tired. You'll watch one more show. You're passively doing this thing. You're oh. operating at a presumably lower-ish cognitive level. What, however, we're uh, quantify uh, qualifying that. But uh, but then you end up watching five shows more sound than you and had light. anticipated. Sound and light. There's yeah. no, not with a book. No sound and light with a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. how many modalities are you dealing with? How many hmm. of your sensory percepts are on, right? Yeah. I mean, huh. reading is great, I mean, in that sense, because you, you there's only internal source of motivation. You're lying, you're supine, you're immobile, you're maybe like lifting, you know, one, one hand up, holding a book, like you need the effort to read, and that's the only effort, which is really minimal effort, and it's completely internally generated. <laughs> you have zero help with that, like, it's not even an audiobook, right? And so this is what's so beautiful for unmasking sleep that 
but as well as distracting you from other things that typically cause distress and anxiety and insomnia. This is where reading is so wonderful, you know, especially a technical manual or a, you know, somebody, <laughs> a gardening book, you know. Like. <laughs> Sometimes even really good science book in a field I really don't understand where, like... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, that's yeah, that, I, when, I, when I continue to read something, even when I'm not, when I'm just crossing my fingers that within a chapter or so, I'll it'll start clicking. But I'm not understanding what I'm reading. That mm-hmm. that'll put me right to bed. Yeah, I have um, an insomniac friend who has a big biochemistry textbook by his bed. <laughs> yeah, I. I mean. <laughs> Because there, there has to be Zlatan. You have to have, you, you surely must have a few examples of things like books that work really well in a, even a large percentage. Not even the majority, but just a large percentage of people. And, and there then, has to be some of the most ridiculous things that and, like. And no, Shane, yeah, this is where we cue most of your listeners are zeroing in now what can i do Uh, what do you recommend Uh, yeah which he doesn't like to do but we're making them yeah uh, yeah i don't know is are the good examples i mean you know people have find out all kinds of rituals i mean part of what you want is that ritual before bed sometimes Mm -hmm. reading in itself is something to signal to you to stop thinking of other things it becomes less of what the activity inherently is but more about that you chose to do this other activity and that helps by tamping down this interferon so to speak rather than really promoting sleep in any way but but I, I think, you know, what what we already hit on with the discussion is like, you know, something that stimulates the least number of sensory modalities, something that doesn't require anything, but it's not related to your daily worries. I mean, that's why counting sheep is the raw example. It doesn't matter that it's sheep. Counting goes forever. So it's like easily easy to sustain. And, you know, it has nothing to do with anything. Like, I mean, that's the whole point of counting sheep. Um, and any, anything thing like, like it, you know. Um, um, you know, praying is another internally generated thing that it doesn't involve any stimulation. And a lot of people do that before bed. And so the antithesis to that is focusing on your to-do list, right? Right. And, you know, yeah. what will I do tomorrow? Uh, it's naturally yeah. to happen as a part of that hypnagogic period as we naturally kind of review, reprocess everything. So that occurs, but ideally that doesn't arouse us too much or it doesn't interfere with that process but you know now once you involve other things and phone where you can like where you can rearouse all of these things extremely easily uh yeah those transitions get uh, complicated so what about aspects or uh criteria that are listed in matthew walker's why we sleep book like make your place really cold and uh and have consistency at bedtime and don't uh take caffeine within six hours of going to sleep those are reasonable Okay. Those are, I mean, the cold thing becomes important sometimes when people are falling asleep, but especially when you're getting a REM, uh, we actually stop internally controlling our body temperature. Uh, we don't become like lizards because we'd get very cold, but basically we just have like a, what sort of a nice, well-controlled thermostat central heating goes into like a crackling fire, which is why you all get all that sweating and why often if it's been a really hot room, you'll wake up early in the morning 
getting really hot and really sweaty. It's just because our thermostats go all out of whack during REM. So this is also one one uh, reason to help have a cold room because you're not going to get hot later in the night uh, in REM when you tend to have these heat surges. Um, uh, so that's one reason why that makes sense. Um, and uh, yeah, those are I think those are reasonable things. You know, consistency is really important but hard to come by. <laughs> Hmm. Oh, hey, I mean, uh, we're, we're, is, is there any, is there any, uh, um, you, you know, I, I heard, I heard some, uh, some wellness person speaking of things that'll put me to sleep. Um, any, any kind of, uh, life coach, uh, just listen to a life coach, uh, and that'll, that'll do it for me. But I heard some guy, I had to get ready for this, uh, this, anyway i was forced to listen to this this uh guy who was selling some um selling some new bed that changed temperature and it it, it sounded interesting and, then, <laughs> uh, it, it, and i'm not i'm not going to buy it and i didn't trust it but i was like some of this logic does sort of make sense and one of the things that i was like am i a fool for buying into this idea was was that perhaps our ancestors were sleeping on like cold ground as well and that had to do with some of our how our regulatory processes have changed during sleep over time is that a question for me? Uh, it's, yeah, I think it's Latin. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think th a, probably a single biggest problem with modern sleep is just an evolutionary ma mismatch. I mean, yeah. sleep has evolved to be inherently flexible, to be phasic, to be a dependent season, to depend on the length of date, to depend on all these things, and uh, uh, not to be sleeping in a solitary room away from, you know, all that's been betrayed in the last 150 years of human civilization. Mm -hmm. Have we gotten great things for that betrayal? We definitely have in terms of technological development, you know, standard of life and a bunch of other goodies, uh, including Walmart. Um, and then, but, you know, the problem is, is that now... This is where know, we'll disagree. <laughs> this is where we disagree. I, and here's I, where the fight begins, Shane. I, 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 the, the, wall, the Walmart. Yeah, the Walmart. Pitch. Yeah, I, I was very anti-Walmart a long time ago, and then I spent enough time in Jamaica to be like, oh, they need a Walmart here. Uh, is what, it's just, is it's just that Walmart's just another adaptation with its downsides, yeah. don't you get that? So, yeah, anyways, this is a whole episode. But, but, but but I think this is uh, the uh, so so that's uh, so I think you know we we're paying the price because condition that we need for sleep are hard to come by. We overstimulated, the phones are in the rooms, etc. Like, I think that's a big problem overall. And the flexibility for us to follow our natural sleep pattern has also been removed in a lot of cases due to uh, necessary shift work, for example, uh, mm. that's forced on some people that shouldn't be doing it or to do it out of necessity um, and things like that. School. Uh, well, Barrett, does, does this, is, is this one of the many advantages of, of studying sleep and things like insects and uh, other species in life where they there's not as many confounds necessarily in our modern world obviously obviously humans have changed the landscape for a lot of life on on earth but um uh but you would think maybe ant colonies or or some of the bees that you study or so it's it's 
pretty damn near the environment. You can create an environment pretty similar to what they were. Actually, in. it it invites very much the anthropogenic problems that humans face. Many non-humans face as well. So there is a large and growing sleep literature involving light pollution, noise mm. pollution, and its effects on bird sleep and other organismal sleep. So uh, we have had our footprint, handprint, nose print, face print, eye print, elbow prints, spleen prints all over the map, all over the globe. And that shows in sometimes very ugly ways uh, where we pollute those organisms that we think aren't being adversely affected when they are. It's just that we know so little about the before that we can't gauge the relative after. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, I mean, uh, even things such as, you know, David Attenborough's wonderful documentaries produced by the BBC, which I personally love, you know, the idea yeah. of on seeing unspoiled nature, most people don't realize that, you know, that stuff's been heavily edited. There's human stuff and other stuff that's been removed from the unspoiled nature. And a lot of those areas that are featured in those <laughs> documentaries are just not as unspoiled as they appear on the screen. And there's actually very few unspoiled, quote unquote, uh, areas where you really don't have a human footprint. Um, some of the plant life is uh, literally on a set <laughs> some, yeah. once in a no, while, some of the flowers said, and things. That said, yeah. Shane, there are great opportunities for trying mm -hmm. to better understand uh, evolutionary origins or uh, more natural or naturalistic uh, scenarios of sleep in a number mm. of lineages. And uh, people are attempting to do that. For example, I mentioned Niels Rattenborg, John Lescue, and, and I, to some extent with honeybees, are trying to get at wild sleep or sleep in the wild. What does it mean? Well, I'll give you a, a great case, a comparative case within one species. So there's a study with a sloth looking at sleep in a lab. And the sloth slept for a long time slept mm -hmm. for something like 15 and a half hours. And you think, ah, because it's a sloth, right? And then they gained uh, technology with a collaborator in Israel who can create these um, little loggers. And you and place those on the head. They sleep as much as humans, just yeah, about. And, and so you can let that sloth go loose, and they did. Mm -hmm. And then they got the logger back and found that, no, it's actually sleeping in the wild about nine and a half hours of sleep a night. So some of these inflated uh, or deflated understandings of sleep may be um, problematic due to the approach, the study approach. So mm. understanding organisms in the wild, now we've got this renaissance, this new technologically driven capacity to get a better handle on what it means, means to sleep in a natural sense. Yeah. Mm. I think to, uh, as a final note, the, you know, the context reigns supreme there and, and we always have to have this dialogue between naturalistic studies of sleep and laboratory studies of sleep. Mm. I um, feel like I should give a quote about dreams right now. Let's hear it. All right. This is from James Hillman in an essay. Our dreams recover what the world forgets. 
Forgotten pagan polytheism breeds in animal forms. And those animals are the ancient gods, the Celtic horns and salmon, the Viking bears, the Egyptian pigs and river horses, crocodiles and cats, the Roman wolves and eagles, the Navajo. The old gods are still there in our dreams, those zoological cathedrals, where there's a mansion for the insects of Beelzebub and Mephistopheles. The animals may go on like gods, alive and well and unforgotten, in the icons of our dreams and in the vital obsessions of complexes and symptoms, the little bugs indestructible. <laughs> Love that Lovely one. Lovely reading. We always get at least one quote out of Barrett. Uh, <laughs> oh, and you, hey, you I, asked I me about an like insect that you mask. Come more I bought prepared one. than I am. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Got my insect mask. What's that, a cicada? Oh, no, it's a stag beetle, family Lucanidae. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Um, all right. So first off, um, as, as we start wrapping up, um, it, what's it, Barrett, first question for you, what's some of the species that you spend the most time studying in terms of sleep and what, uh, which ones do you think that we will learn the most about sleep from? It depends on what your questions are and what actually one arena that we didn't even address at all and I was hoping to spend the entire time on is where Zlatan and and my research might overlap. And that's mm-hmm. looking at social aspects of sleep and also the psychology of sleep and behavioral syndromes or personality with respect to sleep. So these are things I'd love to address at some point, either with uh, Zlatan on our own or maybe yes, together in the future. That sounds good. I would I would totally love that because I, I could envision if you'd be up for it, Zlatan, uh, some kind of collaboration I would love where I could where I could learn about um and this sorry Shane, you expected a battle is, royale and here is, I'm no, trying to propose a collaboration. Like, this is, this, this we is should is just exactly shut this down I, right now. Uh, this yeah. is a wait oh, 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 oh. <laughs> But I could I could easily imagine, for example, just as in so many comparative studies, a human psychology uh, influence on, hey, but does that happen in honeybees? Just as uh, I have a lot of questions that would be fun to address in humans too. And that would be pretty exciting. But but to uh, but to but to address your question, Shane, um, some of the organisms that I typically spend a lot of my time looking at because I love them are insects and I've I've fallen in love with all the questions since I'm interested in complex social organization and uh, which includes communication which includes um, division of labor uh, I've focused on honeybees a lot but I also look at wasps uh, other social organisms. But a master's student in my lab will be looking at solitary arthropods, and I'm really excited about that as well. Arthropods are segmented, jointed-legged animals like insects. Uh, but this is a non-insect I'm really excited about exploring. And some of the questions can draw me into non-insect or non-arthropod lineages. And I mentioned I'm I'm collaboratively working on bats with uh, Yossi Yovel in Israel, and Rachel Page in Panama, and we're really getting some interesting results over the years uh, related to a few species of bats. So it really 
it it tends to be question driven, but also taxon driven because I love insects. So I'm going to keep looking at certain insects because just as um, Carl von Frisch said, he, he likened honeybees to a magic well. The more you pull up, the more there is, right? And with honeybees, the more questions you ask, as with anything in science, the more questions arise. Hmm. Um, Slatin, what, uh, what are some of the projects that you're working on right now that you're the most excited about? Well, it's tackling this question of this sort of bi-directional dynamics between how you're sleeping and how long you're sleeping and then daytime activity, what you're doing, the sort of emotional distress and, and inputs that are going on and and how to methodologically do that we have opportunity now we have a great let's say daily data from people that have wore sleep trackers over multiple months and reported on psychological things every day and can we find mathematical models that will allow us to, to simultaneously try to get at what is more predictive of what or what is influencing uh, uh, what and ultimately, you know, th there may not be a, s a simple answer there, uh, here, here, uh, but uh, it, it, it may very much, uh, uh, much depend. And you know, this gets into you know episodes and mental health episodes and periods of time where you have you know sleep loss and and certain kinds of behavior, good periods of time um, when you're pursuing rewards and willingly sacrificing sleep versus times when you're not sacrificing sleep due to distress and there are all these. Kinds of dynamics that are really important for what lost sleep means and and you know one question that i'm very excited about that that i don't even know how to tackle yet is is and because it's just so hard to isolate experimentally is one hour of sleep loss uh, when you lost it for this reason, the same as the same hour of sleep loss mm. when you wow, lost it I love for it. a different reason. And that is something incredible. So it's like, you know, well, you've been sleeping less because you've been going out late before you had a baby. Then you sleep in less when you have a baby. It's not quite the same. Now, of course, there may be more work during the same time than there. And so, but to equalize those things experimentally becomes almost impossible but it kind of gets at these trade-offs too right is that if you spend your wakeful hours doing this instead of sleeping it may be value to you in one context but maybe doing something else like one extra hour of netflix may not really have that value in terms of the wakefulness so those are i think some of the things um that again reach at a function of sleep and how much sleep one ought to have that are exciting you know that so I'm automatically I'm thinking of how to how that might play out with honeybees or insects. And so for example, if you can induce an organism to uh attain greater wakefulness and less sleep, is that different than stressing them out, you know, all things being equal, the sleep deprivation or sleep restriction is a stressor. So you'd have to control for that stressor, and maybe you can do it during a wakeful state. And that's the and all sleep experimental literature has this confound. It's like either you have a choice to yeah. stay awake, or in animals, you got to give them a damn good reason to be awake, which usually involves yeah. some sort of stress, right? Like 
when and with rats being on the top of water and a platform where they have to go continuously yes. unless they're gonna drown i mean and that, that's like a ridiculous situation yeah. right like the, the, up, the upside down jellyfish study pull the rug from underneath them and they went whoa how long does it take them to get back on the floor so, but in real life so. we we pretty much in all human experimental sleep studies the people have decided not to sleep because they want to get the money or because there's a research assistant mm. they're looking at them in a lot of those mm. cases they probably slept anyways through microsleeps which were not documented or observed so yeah all mm. kinds of stuff you get now there was there was one study i forgot the authors but wasn't it transcranial tomography basically electrical stimulation of one part of the brain during slow wave sleep to increase the duration of slow wave sleep and there was some statistically significant additional ability to pair words that were paired beforehand so so there there that would be an exception where you're actually inducing more at least of one stage of sleep versus depriving sleep yeah, and, and but and when you do see one stage of sleep, you know, then you have cardio controlling over length of sleep or which other uh, stage of sleep. So that's where and any change in sleep, you will ch the thing you target, you will change something else with it automatically, which becomes yeah. an, an issue. But enough of the technical details for our audience <laughs> at this point. No, I love it. I, I mean, uh, here here's one last, um, uh, I, I guess it it's intuitive but uh, the answer is probably complicated so i every time we have a sleep episode i love to brag about what a good sleeper i am i think i'm an amazing sleeper i'm a great napper you're the best shane i'm an incredible napper like <laughs> just like world-class you're napper. a champion sleeper and i think one of the big reasons is because i believe that about myself and because <laughs> i have so much past experience with napping with falling uh, to uh, asleep exactly when i want to that i just feel like i have mastery over sleep you could and, be a life coach and, and, and there you go well i guess what i'm getting at is there's there's got to be all these feedback loops where where you have trouble sleeping four or five nights in a row or a few weeks in a row because of some environmental thing in your life and then that just becomes this this confidence issue the pressure mm -hmm. of having trouble sleeping creating now the the paradox of making it even harder to sleep they call it psychophysiology psychophysiological or learned insomnia which is exactly what happens you start to associate going to bed with just bad things and not being able to sleep which then interferes with you being able to sleep which makes you not want to go to bed anymore and pretty soon you develop very maladaptive sleeping habits um it's a thing yeah yeah so so in in those cases have you seen any any of uh, like temporary um pharmaceutical interventions the 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 sort of stuff that i i know most people are very wary of in terms of tolerances built addictive um uh cycles can be formed so, so here's heart of the press uh i mean it's not of the press but i've just talked to this drug company or their medical liaison recently um i, I don't want to get into the company or the drug name which is currently undergoing fda approval so it's not 
available actually at this point. But the reason it's interesting that most current hypnotics work on sort of gabinergic systems, right? On these systems that really kind of uh, tamp down a lot of uh, broad arousal in the brain and, and they tend to in- enhance the proportion of non-REM sleep um, and often involve the grogginess, all the kind of things. Those are tr- tr- traditional hyp- hypnotics. But this new drug that they're working on involves really this erection. I did. We lost Z. Right at the end. Man! Oh, man. So you're not purposely censoring this? No, this is... uh, There. he's back. Sorry. I I know you said something profound uh, and sagely. You you said... uh, (laughs) You you were talking... You were talking about the the GABA receptors. <laughs> These new drugs that have been developed, uh, Hitorexin, which is really a way... Oh, wait, it was the pharmaceutical company censoring yeah. you. Yeah, maybe oh. that's there. Well, they're certainly not paying me, so... <laughs> 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 um, the, uh, but it, it, this works on erexin receptors, which are wake, wakefulness-promoting receptors. And one exciting thing is that these drugs may not be changing the amount of given sleep stage and may not be changing the sleep architecture. So it could be, for example, that they don't have some of the side effects or problems from the old drugs, which tend to decrease the amount of REM sleep, relatively speaking, because gabinergic neurons really promote non-REM rather than REM sleep, for example. So these new drugs that work on and sleep involves a bunch of different chemicals that have their own little roles to play. Um, so, so those are you know kinds of things I guess way down that are happening uh, that may actually impact people and may change how sleep is treated as well as how these medications work or what it that means for sleep. Hmm. On that uh, note, well, amazing. Um, yeah. Th- thank you guys so much. This has been terrific. Um, I've had a great time. Slatin Christian and and Barrett Klein, thank you for joining me once again. I'm so happy that you guys got to meet one another. And yeah, I same know, here. Uh, yeah. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. All right, everybody, quick reminder on patreon.com slash Shane Moss. I am now offering a weekly guided rumination, Patreon people only sneak peek at some of the silly stuff that I'm putting together. Also, a way that you can support this show. Additionally, on there, we do things like uh, group overshares, which are like basically a, a group therapy session where everyone gets to uh, have a chance to discuss the stuff that they've been ruminating over, the stuff that, that's on their mind that uh, a lot of times we don't get an opportunity to um, to talk about publicly and with friends and like-minded people. Um, and we just go, how's work? Good. Uh, how are you? I'm good. 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 Yeah, it's good. They're good. Everyone's good. Everyone's good. And so it's just a, a way of uh, actually sharing, sharing some of the stuff that you don't normally get to talk about, good and bad. And then uh, I, I would, I'd love to do more of them um, uh, too. So uh, just uh, when there's more demand and more Patreon support, then I'll, I'll keep adding more Patreon content as the uh as the numbers make sense to do so so 
um, uh, we also have game nights on there as well. And, uh, and that's it. Thanks for supporting the show. Again, um, have a good holiday season, and I'll see you next week.